A few years ago, I was going on a trip with my wife, and I went to the check-in counter of the Manila airport to stand in line while Cindy went to the bathroom. When she joined me at the check-in counter, she motioned to me to look at the person standing in front of us. I looked at that person and shrugged my shoulder because I didn't know the person. She motioned for me to check my phone where she had texted me the question, do you know who's standing in front of us? I texted back, no. She wrote, it's Sharon Cuneta. I wrote, so? And she writes back, she's a famous Filipina actress. She wrote with a lot of exclamation marks. I replied, I think I know her because her name sounds familiar. But for me, even though I said I knew her, I only really knew her name. And to me, she was just another person who was standing in line waiting to get their boarding pass. Cindy, on the other hand, was all giddy with excitement, standing so close to someone famous. So I asked her, do you know her? She began to list some of the shows she starred in. But outside of her general biography about her family and her work, Cindy honestly didn't know her as a person really well. You see, in my case, if you're really not familiar with someone, it can be hard to recognize them when they come close. Think of European soccer players, Indian cricket players, or English or Italian Formula One drivers. They are wildly popular and well-known in parts of the world, but when they come to the Philippines or go to America, with a few exceptions, they can walk down the street without being mobbed. In America or in the Philippines, no one knows who they are. The same goes with PBA players going to America. No one recognizes them. In the same way, if we really don't know God, we can say we know Him, but certainly we will often miss out on Him, even if He crosses our path right in front of us. It is interesting that when we say we know someone, the level of intimacy and knowledge really varies. When we say we know God, oftentimes, sadly, our relationship is superficial or shallow at best, or we only know about Him but do not really know His heart. And this is the reason why so many Christians waver during challenging and difficult times because their knowledge of God is only superficial. It's only at the surface level, and Christians do not realize that knowing God entails a personal relationship that goes to a deeper understanding of the Almighty God to calm our worries and to alleviate our fears. So let's continue our sermon series titled Unshakable as we study the book of 1 John. In this series, we are learning what it means to be in fellowship with God and how to grow more intimately close to Him, and in the process, build up a confident faith that will allow us to be unshakable in these times of uncertainties. In this message, we want to look specifically at what it means to know God and what does it look like practically when knowing God is lived out. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John as we take a look at chapter 2, verses 3 to 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 17. Now, as you're turning to this passage, let's all be reminded that out of all the people we need to know and the relationships that we need to build into, the most important one is our relationship with God. I remember the story of the famous writer Mark Twain, who had made his triumphal tour throughout Europe, where he was honored by great universities and kings. And as Franklin Kirksey tells it, when he came back to America, his daughter said, Daddy, I guess pretty soon you will know everybody except God. The truth is it doesn't matter who you know or how many you know. Ultimately, knowing God is the only relationship that matters for eternity. So let's all work on that relationship and really know God. I read now verses 3 to 6 
of 1 John chapter 2. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who said, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says He abides in Him ought Himself also to walk just as He walked. Here the Apostle John begins by simply stating that the test of knowing if one has a deep and intimate fellowship walk with God and really knows God is if he obeys his commandments. You see, there are many people who claim to know God and have an intimate walk with Him, but in fact they really don't. They don't know anything about what God desires for them to do as He is so revealed through His Word. And that lack of really knowing God is apparent when we are ignorant of His commands and expectations for us, or we willfully choose to ignore what He desires us to do. Let me give you an example. Let's say someone tells you that they know Pastor Stephen really well, and you were to ask them, what do you think Pastor Stephen would choose if given the choice between eating healthy vegetables versus a juicy piece of steak? Now, you can try to guess which I would choose and have a 50-50% chance of getting it right and thereby pretending to know what I would choose and pretending to really know me. But the uncertainty of knowing what I would choose with certainty means you really don't know me. Or if you choose for me the healthy vegetables because you saw a few of my social media posts about me trying to exercise more and be healthier, and you may think that my exercising more means I definitely would choose the healthier options, then you certainly would not know me well. But if you would say without a doubt, for sure, he would choose that juicy piece of steak, and I'm 100% sure that that would be his choice, then you would know me very well as you so claim. And that's what John is trying to say here in verse 3. If you say you have a great fellowship with Christ and intimately know well Jesus, then you will know with certainty what He desires. You will know with certainty His will, His wishes for how you are to live your life. Because one who is ignorant of God's revealed will in the Bible doesn't really know Him. But John's point goes further than just about not knowing His commandments. He talks about knowing those commands, but not keeping or obeying them. And this willful ignoring of the commands shows that one isn't really in a close relationship with the Lord. For example, let's say you know that I don't like the very pungent fruit durian. Now, you may like it, but it's something I greatly dislike because of the strong smell. In fact, I've banned it from my house. I do not serve it to my guests, and I've told people not to give it to me as a gift. If you claim to really know me well, would you gift me with durian? Would you take me out to a restaurant and serve me durian? Would you come over to my house and ask if you can eat your durian in front of me in my house? If you do those things, you really don't know me, and we certainly would not be very good friends who are in fellowship together if you intentionally do these things even though you know it greatly displeases me. And this is John's point. When you say you know God, then you will follow His commandments, His desires, His will. If you know that a holy God commands that we are not to walk in sin, nor to engage in a sinful lifestyle as revealed in His Word, but then we continue to engage in those sinful practices under the watchful gaze of His omniscient eyes, then we really do not know Him. 
we don't have a deep relationship with Him because we dare to openly do the things that displease the one we say we know. But positively, as John points out in verses 5 to 6, those who keep God's commandments really are in intimate fellowship with God because they know the heart of God. In fact, John writes that the love of God is perfected in him, meaning they will experience the love of God in a very special way. We can note that we should obey God and His commands, not primarily because of fear, but because we love Him. Obedience through fear is not something that is enjoyable, but obedience because of love is truly enjoyable. And here, verse 6 pulls it all together when John writes that Christians who say they abide and are in a relationship with the Lord should walk and live out their lives just as Jesus did. People who say they know God and are in a relationship with Jesus should begin to exude Christ-likeness in speech, in action, in the thought life, and in their hearts. You know, when we spend time with certain people, consciously or unconsciously, we begin to adapt to their speech patterns, to their style of clothing, to their way of living. We adjust to their culture and assimilate into how they think and what they value. Dr. Mark Leary of Duke University in an article titled, The Role of the Environment in Shaping Personality, writes, based on genetic data, researchers have concluded that environment accounts for approximately 50 to 70 percent of personality. One environmental influence on personality is culture. For instance, some cultures dictate that children should be reserved and speak only when spoken to. Another environmental influence is school. Since children spend the majority of their time in school, this can have a huge influence on their personality. If they go to a school where violence and drug abuse proliferates, they are more likely to engage in these behaviors themselves as peer pressure can be very powerful. And this is true. Living here in Asia now for 16 years, when I returned back to the United States for ministry, those who knew me well, those who knew me growing up, will comment that I pronounce some English words very differently without me being aware of it. In fact, they will say that my accent has changed. Even my Asian friends tell me that I become so very Asian in my kikiness, my kutchiness. I've somehow adapted to the polite Asian deference. So now it, it is for me so instinctive to refuse something first offered because here in Asia, when offered something, it is common culture to fakingly refuse it at first, even though you want it expecting it to be offered two or three more times at which time you can accept the offer. But of course, some of you know in Western culture, it is offered only once. And if you refuse it, then it is taken away. I have lost out on many things that I wanted in the U.S. because my now Asian natural instinct is to first refuse because I expect a follow-up offer, but it never came. You see, we all adapt holistically to the culture, people, and personality that you and I spend the most time with. For the Christian, if your environment is such that your daily needs are met by daily reading God's Word, where you regularly spend time with our Lord in prayer and deeply know more about His life, then your action and speech and thought life will begin to change to be more Christ-like, and you will have a greater desire to live out what He wants you to do. Now, putting it all together, principle number one, knowing God should result in Christ-likeness as demonstrated by our obeying of His commands. Knowing God should result in Christ-likeness 
as demonstrated by our obeying of His commands. I read now verses 7 and 8. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, as to what specific commandment John had in mind for the Christian audience he is writing to, verses 7 to 11 tells us it is quite clear that it is the commandment to love one another. Remember Jesus' last night on earth before His death? He gave this statement in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here Jesus told His disciples to love one another, to love fellow believers and fellow followers of Jesus Christ as He has also loved them. Of course, we are to love all people as God loves all people, but this specific practice to love everyone in the Christian community would testify to the world that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And in verse 8 of 1 John chapter 2, when John writes that it is a new commandment, he isn't saying it is new at the time of the writing of his letter, since he wrote earlier in verse 7 that it was an old commandment. What he means is that it is new in the sense that it is still fresh, it is still applicable for the present time, it has not become passe or outdated. It is applicable for today. In fact, Jesus Himself exemplified this truth of loving one another, where in verse 8 it says, the true light is already shining. It's alluding to the fact that Jesus Christ has come in incarnate human form to demonstrate this truth when He laid down His own life for others, for each one of us in a demonstration of His unconditional love to unworthy and undeserving people like you and me. So, in view of this commandment to love one another as demonstrated by Jesus Christ, what are the practical implications? Look at verses 9 to 11. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Again, John implies that if someone claims to know God and to have fellowship with Jesus and then hates fellow Christians, then he isn't really in an intimate relationship with the Lord because he isn't aligned with God's perspective of loving others. Now, on the other hand, if someone loves his fellow Christian brother and sisters, then a stumbling block, a hindrance is removed because hatred isn't as prevalent in that heart. We know that hatred and greatly disliking someone is the cause of many issues. Not only can the person whom you hate not do right in your eyes, but you will never give them an opportunity to be your friend and to show how truly wonderful they are. Because if you harbor hate towards someone, then it will certainly affect your relationship with the Lord. Because not only is it contrary to what God desires, but also how can we be in close relationship with the one who has been so gracious and forgiving of us, but somehow we can do the same for others. Let's say, for example, you accidentally kill the only son of a family in a tragic accident. 
but the victim's father forgives you, and surprisingly, you become a family friend. He invites you to their home for meals every holiday and on special family celebrations. But let's say in one of the gatherings, one of his friends, who has also been invited, spills his drink on your shirt, and you hate that person for being so clumsy and ruining your shirt, and you always remember how much you dislike that person. Would you not think it strange and actually quite awkward to be in those festive gatherings as one who has been forgiven as a killer and invited to be an intimate friend, but yet you are unwilling to forgive another guest for spilling water on you? How would you explain that to the host, the father of the one you accidentally killed, that you can't forgive one of his friends for accidentally spilling his drink on you? In the same way, God's Son, Jesus, had to die so that we might have friendship and fellowship with God. And God forgives us of our sins, which is deserving of death because of His Son. It would certainly be an issue with God if we cannot forgive another of His guests for offending us in such a minor way. That's how hatred in our heart affects our relationship and fellowship with God. John continues in verse 11 to say that if one does not know God, know God's heart, and walk intimately with Him, then He walks in darkness. And one who walks in darkness is described as one who is blinded and doesn't know where He's going. And that's often the case, because when we don't see as God sees other people, then we are blinded to see just how much they are loved by God, how they are truly valued by God, just as we are, so much so that God would die for them as well. In our eyes, they may be unlovable, but in God's eyes, they are precious. And we should realize this in order to change our own perspective towards our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and in fact, towards all people. You see, being blinded in darkness means we assume certain things of people that may be wrong, or that the fact that they can't change or never change, even if they have experienced true life transformation in Jesus Christ. And so, hence, we continue to hate them, but then the problem is on us. You know, when I leave my office to walk back home, there is an office hallway I have to walk through to get to the exit door. But because the light switch is not at the end of the hallway, I would have to walk to the end of the hallway, turn on the exit door light, which is rightfully usually turned off, and then come back to the middle of the hallway to turn the hallway lights off, and then walk back again towards the end of the hallway. But I'm lazy, and I would just turn off the hallway light when I get there, and so that I don't have to double back, I will then walk in pitch darkness through the hallway to get to the exit door. For years, this has never been a problem because the hallway is mostly always clear. And even if the hallway is pitch dark, I walk confidently straight down the hallway to the exit door, having done so thousands of times. Well, about three weeks ago, someone left some unused chairs in the hallway, which I didn't notice. So I turned off the hallway lights and began walking down the pitch black hallway confidently to the door, and you guessed it. I walked right into those chairs, tripped, and fell down. At first, I was angry. Who put those chairs there? Those chairs shouldn't be there. The hallway should always be clear. But then I realized that the fault was mine because the question could be asked of me, why didn't you turn on the lights to see? There is no rule that things can't be placed in the hallway. Why do you assume that the hallway would always be clear? It was my fault for walking in darkness and being blinded to those chairs. When you see others through the lenses of light, we can see that just as things and circumstances changes, 
people do change as well through the transformative work of Christ in their lives and through the Holy Spirit's conviction. This is why there is this admonition to love people in the light and not to blindly hate them in the darkness. Now, can I just say that love for others doesn't mean that you have to accept everything that they are doing which is not in line with God's Word. It doesn't mean we can't discipline them or rebuke them or call them out or to correct them if they are wrong. Discipline and calling to attention wrongs are part of loving one another, and we are to do so out of the love for them with grace and truth. But the bottom line is this. If a Christian claims to know God and walks with Jesus, then he will love others. Here's principle number two. Knowing God should result in Christ-likeness as exemplified by loving others as God so loved us. Knowing God should result in Christ-likeness as exemplified by loving others as God so loved us. I read now verses 12 to 14. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, here in these verses, in very personal terms, John writes to the Christian readers identifying three experiences that speak of the process of spiritual maturity and development to encourage them to get to know God more. In verse 12, we see John referring to the Christian readers as little children and asking them to look forward in the process of spiritual maturity from the perspective of one who is a child in the faith. They are reminded that their sins are forgiven. But in the second part of verse 13, looking ahead, now they have known the Father. You see, it is important that as children in the faith, the process of maturity is to expand from the basic truth that your sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ's death to really getting to know God Himself, His attributes, His character, His heart, His will, His desires. This is important for all those who are still young in the faith to realize that they need to embark on a journey to know God more, to continue being rooted in the Word and expanding beyond the basic knowledge of Jesus Christ to a fuller understanding of the Lord. To know God is to know God more fully. Knowing God doesn't just stop at the basics. For example, if you love someone and you're courting them, do you stop at getting to know him or her when you find out what school he or she went to or what they majored in in college? Or do you stop getting to know them when you find out where he or she works? Of course not. If you really love that person, you will want to know what she likes, what he's into, what makes her happy, what makes him upset, what brings joy to her heart. It is the same process of knowing God more when we love Him. Now, in verses 13 and the first part of verse 14, we see that John calls the Christian readers fathers, asking them to look from the perspective of adults in the faith and to look backwards in the process of spiritual maturity. And as they look back and assess their spiritual maturity and development, they should be reminded that the one they got to know is the unchanging eternal Father who is God. And since God does not change since eternity past, then one should logically know more this unchanging eternal God as a natural byproduct of spiritual maturity. 
It's like if you ask a couple who is celebrating their golden anniversary that after 50 years of marriage, when they look back through their married life, do they know more about each other as spouses than in the first year of marriage? Of course. The natural and expected answer is absolutely yes. We know more about each other now that we've been married 50 years than we knew about each other in our first year of marriage. But sadly, if you ask some Christians, or even ask yourself, who has known God for decades, perhaps even 50 years, if you know more about God than you did in the first year of accepting Him as your personal Savior, how many of you can honestly answer, I know a lot more about Him? In reality, I think most of our answers may be, I don't know much more about a God who I've been in a relationship with for a few decades. And that would be most unfortunate. In the middle of verse 13, John refers to the Christian readers as young men and refers to them as having overcome the wicked one. But at the end of verse 14, John says that these young men have overcome the wicked one as they are now spiritually strong and grounded in the Word of God. This is John asking the readers to look through the lenses of their active spiritual warfare life as Christians and showing them that continual victory over Satan as they spiritually mature and develop is through their grounding in God's Word as they know God more. The victory we can have over Satan's many tactics is by knowing how we can defend ourselves through what is revealed in God's Word about who God is. We can live in victory because God is victorious over Satan, which will be reiterated later in chapter 4, verse 4. You see, my friends, for many Christians, we live very defeated spiritual lives because we are not grounded in God's Word. It's like going into battle thinking all you have to fight with is your fist, but not knowing that you have a cache of weapons at your disposal. But the reason you don't know about those offensive and defensive weapons against spiritual attacks is because you've never read the instructions of where to find those weapons and how to use them as you wage your battles in order to win them. And this is John's point. In all three perspectives, it's all about the need to know God more through the process of spiritual maturity in order to be victorious in the Christian life. So putting it all together, we have our third principle, number three. Knowing God should result in Christ-likeness through the process of spiritual maturity for a victorious Christian life. Knowing God should result in Christ-likeness through the process of spiritual maturity for a victorious Christian life. I read now verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Here in these verses, John concludes this section with a warning to Christian readers that they should not love the world or the things of the world because it is not compatible or aligned with the things of God. And also, the things of the world are temporary. Let's first look at the compatibility issue and then the temporary nature of the things of the world. In verse 16, John spells out the three areas of worldly temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, with the lust of the flesh, the world tempts us by saying, we can do whatever we want. Enjoy whatever makes you feel good. 
The body you have is for your pleasure, to enjoy life, enjoy the pleasures of sexual passion outside of God's intention of marriage between one man and one woman. The world, therefore, hypersexualizes everything so that we are desensitized and believe that what God says about purity and intimacy only within the bounds of marriage is old-fashioned and outdated. And honestly, God takes out all the fun out of life. That is how the world tempts us. With the lust of the eyes, the world tempts us with the allure of telling us that we can have whatever we want through the coveting of our eyes. You can have the best of material things, buy into the world system, and you can have the nicest cars, the biggest houses, the most up-to-date gadgets, the latest fashion designs. You don't need to set your minds on things above. Look at the temporary, and you can have it now. You can do whatever you want to get whatever you desire, even if it's illegal or unethical. Just justify it away because you can get what you've always wanted. With the pride of life, the world tempts us by getting us to focus on ourselves, speaking to our ego, and then to tap into our pride. So the world says you can have power, you can control your own destiny, you can be famous, you can be a rock star, you can be a YouTube sensation, you can be an influencer, you can be a viral TikToker, but you need to make sure that you do whatever it takes to be famous. And you may have to do things that are not in line with scriptural principles to get that fame and attention, but it doesn't matter because you'll still be able to be the best in this world. All of these things that the world offers and lures us with is not consistent with knowing God and having a personal relationship with Him because John clearly writes that it is not of the Father. So that is why there's an admonition for us Christians not to love the world, not to crave the things of the world. Because if you crave those things, then you won't desire the things of God. We all know about the power and the draw of craving and desire. Once it's somehow stuck in our mind, we'll do everything we can to try to get what we so desire and to satisfy our craving. Sometimes at the beginning of the week, it comes to mind that I simply must have a juicy, oily burger with cheese, bacon, onions, and mushroom. It's on my mind. It's in my heart, and I think about it often. And so we go through the week, and I go through the week wondering if Cindy will ever tell me, you can have a free night to order whatever you want. But if there's no free night, I may even skip a family meal just to go out and satisfy my craving to get a burger, and I will eat it in the car. Then, of course, after I eat that 1,000-calorie burger washed down with a refreshing Coke and paired with some fries, you see, then my mind somehow fills with regret and guilt. With my desires and cravings satisfied, imagine my mind is now filled with regret and guilt. That 10 minute of having my satisfaction fulfilled now has me realizing I've got to do four hours on the treadmill or two hours of biking just to burn off those calories. It was only a temporary pleasure satisfied, and now I have to deal with some real consequences. Now, this is only an example, and of course, it's okay to enjoy a burger every now and then without feeling guilty. But the point is a temporary pleasure is only that, temporary. But it often has possibly serious ramifications. People caught having a one-night affair or stand with the possibility of their reputation shattered now that it will come to light, 
or their job is now at stake, or their marriage will be on the brink of divorce or annulment, are always sorry. But if you ask them if it was worth it, they'll always tell you it wasn't worth it, and they regret it. And that's the point of what John is trying to say here in verse 17. The world and what it offers is temporary. You can't take the things of the world to the eternal life. And so, that which you try to accumulate here on earth is temporary. It simply doesn't last. Only that which is done for the Lord will last forever because of our eternal rewards. I know it's hard to think about the future because we are so caught up with instant gratification and we don't realize how much better we can have it if we only waited and planned for the future. So, for example, in your hunger, you can't wait for dinner, which is only an hour away. So, you load up with candy and chips because you're so hungry, you have to be satisfied now. But when dinner comes around, you're too full to enjoy the steak and lobster that is waiting for you because now you've filled up with junk food. Or you don't save up for your retirement and spend your paycheck in full every time you get it. You may enjoy eating out every day, but when you retire, you have nothing to allow yourself to enjoy what should be the golden years of your life. And while all of your buddies are taking it easy, you're still working into your 70s because you need to work to survive because you've never saved. You lived in the temporary, now with permanent ramifications. The deception of the evil one is to get us to focus on the temporary so that we will miss out on the wonders of what God has in store for us for all eternity. Satan wants us to have instant gratification so that we will not build into our eternal future. The things of the world should not be loved or craved because they are temporary in nature. Why invest your life into things that will only last for a little bit? Now, putting it all together, principle number four. Knowing God should result in Christ-likeness, which rejects the temporary ungodly allures that the world offers. Knowing God should result in Christ-likeness, which rejects the temporary ungodly allures that the world offers. Now, let me end with this story. There was once a man who made an appointment with his doctor. When the day arrived for his appointment, he was finally ushered into a room where he waited until the doctor came in. After a few brief seconds of how are you type of conversation, the doctor asked the man, what seems to be the problem? The man says, Doc, I actually have three problems that have so aggravated me, I've decided to come in and get them taken care of. You see, the first thing is I can't see things the way I used to. The second thing is I feel like I need to go to the bathroom every five minutes. And the third thing is I have an ingrown toenail that just will not heal. With that, the doctor proceeded to obtain a thorough case history, after which he performed an examination and ordered a number of lab tests. When he had finished, he told the man to come back in a couple of days when the test results would come in. The man came back to his physician at the appointed time, and the doctor said to him, Mr. Jones, you don't have three problems, you have one. You have a disease called diabetes. That's what's given you the three symptoms you told me about on your last visit. The lab tests have confirmed my diagnosis. Mr. Jones replied, you quack doctor, you're crazy. He then went to an optometrist to get some glasses, a podiatrist to get his ingrown toenail treated, and a urologist to try to reduce the number of bathroom visits. But of course, we know that these problems will come back because the root cause of diabetes was never dealt with. My friends, in the same way, we're often addressing only the superficial issues of knowing God. We have not 
put in the time, energy, and space to really get to the root level issue and to know Him personally, because if so, then it should result in becoming more like Him. So I'm going to encourage you to really know God because knowing God should result in Christ-likeness as demonstrated by our obeying of His commands. Knowing God should result in Christ-likeness as exemplified by loving others as God so loved us. Knowing God should result in Christ-likeness through the process of spiritual maturity for a victorious Christian life. Knowing God should result in Christ-likeness which rejects the temporary ungodly allure that the world offers. My friends, I pray that you and I would be unshakable in these uncertain times because we truly know God passionately and intimately as we spend time with Him, daily walking with Him so that His desire becomes our desire, His will becomes our will, His heart becomes our heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. We acknowledge that when we say we know You, many times we really have not put in the effort to know You as how You have revealed Yourself in the Scripture. Father, I pray that each of us would go through the process of spiritual maturity in such a way that we will deepen our faith and our understanding of You would be such that as we remember who You are and think about the greatness of who You are, that our love for You will increase and that as we walk with You in fellowship, that our language and our action would reflect Christ so that when the world sees us, they can say, we see Christ in You. Help us to know You more so that we can be like Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.